I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series called Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Johnny B. Good, the host of the podcast Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin. This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company Centratech. I'll explore how 320-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed. I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Murder in Oregon is a production of iHeartRadio. I told you that Mike was a no-hostage personality. And he told me that many times. He says, I don't believe in hostages. I traveled to Salem to meet with Phil, Kevin, and Pat in person. (laughs) (laughs) Kevin recalled an old story about Mike that actually made a local paper and pretty much summed up his attitude about surviving a threat. In 1976, it's the story about the assistant attorney general from New Mexico who was up at Long Beach Naval Station doing his Naval Reserve time that had picked up a couple of people outside the naval base. There were transport boxes is what they would call it, some shit like that. If people needed a ride, you'd sit in there and you could pick them up and take them wherever they needed to go, assuming they were with the Navy base. And Mike picked up this couple The gal was in front and the guy was in back and they pulled a knife on Mike and put it to his throat and said, we're going to kill you and take your car, give me your wallet. Mike gave him the wallet and next thing you know, Mike bailed out of the car. Said, you got the car, you got my wallet, fuck you. And that was it. Yeah, it's driving down the street and he bailed. Somebody nearby said, grab the fucking wheel, grab the fucking wheel. Mike Frankie jumped from a moving vehicle to avoid becoming a victim. It's pretty hard to believe someone like that could be robbed or attacked without putting up a serious fight. He was not going to be in a hostage situation regardless, even with a knife at his throat. If you kill me or cut me, at least I've got a chance if I'm out and away from the situation. And I've tried to plug this in to everybody, Mike's not going to be taken hostage. He's going to figure a way out. You do anything and everything to get out of the situation, regardless of cost. What's more, Mike was cool-headed under pressure. He even kept Kevin out of more than a few barroom brawls. That's where the Mike Frankieism came in, because you don't know if the son of a bitch has got a knife or a gun 
So if you're going in there with your fist, you might get your head cut off. The fact that he would grab somebody who in their right mind thinks that Mike gives a shit about anything they're going to steal out of a state car. Seriously. Here's Phil Stanford's take. I think there's an argument to be made that it would have been a tough fight because Michael Frank is very physical and he knew how to handle himself. But to me, that's a secondary argument because there's no evidence there was a fight. (laughs) That's the thing. Not at the car. Yeah, and you would have thought, particularly given Mike's size, that something would have gotten dented. Whether he was big or small, there would have been evidence of a fight on the ground, inside the car, outside the car. There was no physical evidence. Elise Clausen, Mike's assistant director, told me she was instructed to go to the state police before she went to go see then-Governor Goldschmidt the night of Mike's murder. I mean, I looked inside the car that night, and I told the state police this. I said, everything looks exactly the way it did this afternoon at lunch. You know, as best I could remember. I mean, it didn't look like anything was disturbed. And she told them, you need to take my fingerprints. Because I was with Michael in his car this afternoon, and at least you'd know whatever other prints there are. And they didn't do it. They never took your fingerprints? No. I'm Lauren Bright Pacheco, and this is Murder in Oregon. The three Frankie brothers grew up close in what seems like a quintessential American, almost Norman Rockwell upbringing. Here's Pat. Mike and I were very close growing up. Did a lot of stuff together. Ran away together. (laughs) You ran away together? Yeah, we packed up some bologna sandwiches and decided we were going to run away. I think we made it two blocks up to a water tower, and when we couldn't see the house anymore, we got scared and went home. (laughs) How old were you, though? Oh, Lord. That maybe 10, so he would have been 7. We sledded, we skated, we played ball together. It just, and it was a huge neighborhood. This is after the war. There were tons of kids in the neighborhood and no fences in the backyards. We played capture the flag and war and all of those games until well into the night. Boy energy abounded in the Frankie household, but both parents were quick to reel it in. Neither one would shy away from discipline, I'll put it that way. Whoever got to you first was the disciplinarian. It was it was never wait it wasn't till wait your, your daddy gets home. home and says, your dad's got a mess to clean up when he gets home. And he's going to be even more pissed. We all had different names when dad would talk. I was Jesus Christ Pat Mike Kevin. And Mike was Jesus Christ Pat Mike and Pat was, Jesus Christ, Pat. <laughs> Listen, I broke so trail for all these guys. He'd forget who, I broke who the he trail. was at, and his mind would have to go through the step category because he was so enraged until he hit the right person he was mad at. I see and you. So I was always, Jesus Christ, Mike, Pat, Kevin. <laughs> It 
It's also easy to see where Mike's pull to Law & Order came from. We were all altar boys. At altar. <laughs> altar day, Boy Scouts. I was, I was a Boy Scout. Mike was a Boy Scout. I was a Boy Scout. And we're trustworthy, loyal, helpful, friendly, courteous, loyal, kind, obedient, cheerful, thrifty, brave, brave clean, and reverent. Okay. But while the Frankies were raised good Catholic boys, they certainly didn't sport halos. Mike and and his good friend were a sock hop after a football game. Does anybody know what a sock hop is? You take your shoes off, go dance on a, on a basketball court. Mike and his friend, Bulldog was his name, got into a beef with some guys at Southwest and they beat the hell out of him. Mike and Bulldog were successful in their encounter. How's that? So he goes away to college. The second year, I think, he came back for Christmas and he's at a mixer and he said he'd been drinking bourbon. And he could never drink bourbon after that night. He, he could never drink hard liquor. He sucked at drinking hard liquor. He gave it a go. No, he didn't give it a go. He, he, yeah, he Let's go ahead and come in again. He was dr- dr- drinking bourbon that night, having a pretty good time with this gal, and they're walking out the door, and somebody taps him on the shoulder and says, aren't you Mike Frankie? And he turned around. This guy popped him, and he and two of his friends proceeded to kick the shit out of Mike and in the process kicked his nose into his face. Never a dull moment. Mike liked to fight and wrestle. Phil Stanford believes that toughness came with the territory. Just because of where they grew up. And at the time uh, they they grew up, Kansas City was part of the sort of beginning of the West. It's... uh, Cowboy country? Well, yeah. It's a different mentality. It's not like growing up in, in uh, upstate New York or something like that. That's the way they see themselves. They're not going to back down from a fight. Not Pat, not Mike, uh, not Kevin. Mom met a lot of your demands over the years. This Mother's Day, get her the Bartesian cocktail maker that makes premium cocktails on demand. In just 30 seconds, have your choice of over 60 premium or seasonal cocktails, all at the touch of a button. Get $50 off on the Bartesian cocktail maker now when you buy one pack of cocktail capsules. So, for all the times you made a mess, get Mom the countertop cocktail system that makes premium cocktails without making any mess at all. For all the times you begged for soda, get her premium cocktail capsules made with real fruit juice and craft bitters. For all the times you demanded tacos for dinner, get her the Bartesian that mixes margaritas in just 30 seconds. Make Mom's Mother's Day and all the 364 days that aren't Mother's Day with a Bartesian cocktail maker at $50 off. Visit B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N.com backslash mother now to get $50 off the Bartesian premium cocktail maker. Bartesian, premium cocktails on demand. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, the Apollo Jim murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpert. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. 
my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut, and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, the Apollo Jim Murders, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are you ready to fight back against crime? Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies, personally investigating, prosecuting, and covering literally thousands of cases. It's so easy to think it will never happen to me or my family, but that is simply not true. Every day on Crime Stories with Nancy Grace, we shine a light on unsolved homicides, heat up cold cases, and help find missing people, especially children. We speak with family members, investigators, CSI, reporters, and experts in every field. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. Their close-knit upbringing bonded the brothers and made inconsistencies in the early reports of Mike's murder that much more glaring. Kevin remembers the initial call from Dick Peterson, one of Mike's senior staffers. The whole scenario just seemed absolutely wrong and impossible to begin with. You know, Peterson told me on the phone when I was in Florida that he'd been shot. And I thought, Jesus, you know, that was even worse. But then I get out here and then, oh, no, they think he might have been stabbed. That discrepancy would trigger a memory about something Mike told Kevin over the phone when discussing his new job. He had to clean house and he had to get start surrounding himself with people he could trust about having trouble getting rid of a guy that worked for him. And I said, why don't you just fire him? And he says, I can't fire him. He doesn't work for me. And I said, well, how does he work for you? He's appointed to work for me, but he doesn't work for me. That conversation and initial confusion about how Mike died foreshadowed the tone for the investigation, according to Phil Stanford. The person who had called him to tell him about his brother's death, Dick Peterson, the deputy director, had said, give me a call. I'll help you anytime. Once Kevin got out there, he he called him. And and then uh, Peterson never returned a call. I I think Kevin said he called him five times before he finally gave up. He knew from the beginning that uh, they were not going to help. And he was going to have to fight for any information he was going to get. Yeah. Phil also explains the office dynamic and ranking. Peterson was two. Uh, Cawley was the chief financial officer. I think they were both called assistant directors. There had already been some kind of staff shakeup within the department. Frankie had already informed others that he didn't trust Peterson. He was going to get rid of him. He'd already informed Collie that uh, he, he was going to lose his job. But just over a week before that, another very uh, significant member of the corrections department was forced out of office. Officially, he resigned. But it was because Michael Frankie had written to the governor and and, uh, asked for this person to be replaced. And and we're talking about Scott McAllister, who was the AG lawyer who had for the 
previous 12 or 13 years been assigned to corrections. And so that's the third member of that collection of, of Department of Corrections officers on, on the outs with, with Frankie. McAllister's name would come up again after the murder when Kevin questioned Mike's wife about the employee he was having issues getting rid of. I identified him through what Bington I had talked about the first morning I got in here and identified that individual as Scott McAllister, who is an assistant attorney general that was assigned by the attorney general's office to do all the litigation work for the Department of Corrections. Scott McAllister is a key player in the theory both Phil Stamford and Kevin Frankie have spent 30 years pursuing regarding Mike's murder. Here's Mike's assistant director, Elise Clausen. Scott was our assistant AG, and Scott was there a lot. I do remember at one point, after a meeting with Scott McAllister, Michael said, I'm not sure I have confidence in his recommendation. Something to that effect. He was not particularly comfortable with whatever it was Scott was recommending. After McAllister left corrections, some may have felt more loyal to him and the old boys' system than Frankie, especially since Mike was planning to clean house. There had been issues in the prison system that he discovered and wanted to remedy. I think he made a number of people in the department uncomfortable. Probably the head of prisons, Dick Peterson, and I think some of the superintendents because he was a take-charge kind of guy, and they had been pretty independent actors up until then, and it wasn't probably going to be the case for him. Dave Colley, who was the budget head, I think he made him a bit nervous as well because Michael had the ability to pay lots of attention to that and had a very strong grasp on that kind of information and those kind of details. And, in particular, Clausen is still troubled by the dynamic with Dick Peterson, Mike's deputy director. I can't tell you why, but I always had an uncomfortable feeling about Dick Peterson. I didn't have a lot of confidence in him, and I know that Michael didn't. In fact, I know that Michael was contemplating replacing him. He seemed very anxious after Michael was killed. Dick Peterson, of course, is dead now. But he just always seemed kind of nervous and anxious and couldn't quite ever figure out what that was about. Here's an interesting side note about Peterson from former state representative Chuck Sides. The tour through the prison was so interesting to me. Because Dick Peterson had worked for my mother many years. She was, she worked for him, actually. <laughs> if you knew my mother, he was working for her. Very nice guy. But inside the prison, I saw a whole different side to him. If he got a stare from some con, he'd say, excuse me, Chuck, he would get that guy against the wall, face-to-face inches, and say, if you ever look at me or anybody else like that, you're going to solitary. In harsher terms than I just described. Well, and we go back to walking. Dick Peterson and Dave Colley were the first to search the building looking for Mike Frankie. Kevin believes they were both fully expecting to find Mike's body that night, just not where it wound up. It was supposed to look like a suicide, an arranged suicide. And Dick Peterson, one of the good old boys from Oregon all those years, tells me the morning that he finds out that he's dead, that he was shot. 
When he went to the dome building with Dave Colley that night that they got the call that Mike's car door was found open, he wanted Colley with him as a witness, and he walked into the dome building expecting to find Mike with his brains blown out in his office. Of that, I am sure. And he probably freaked out when he walked back to his office and there was no mic there and there was no blood there. Dick Peterson would claim that the two men had performed an exhaustive search throughout the entire building, every single nook and cranny going all the way up to the third floor. Yet they missed Mike's body on the front north portico. According to Phil, Kevin's arranged suicide theory may be much more than a hunch. There's no way he could have noticed that the window hadn't been broken out and there were broken pieces of glasses in that room. Right. Elise Clausen left with this horrible feeling that something was really wrong. And they tried to call Dave Colley, who was an assistant director in charge of, of financial matters. Turns out he was home, but he didn't answer the phone. He says he was watching TV and didn't hear it ring. About an hour later, he got another call, which he uh, obviously did hear, and he came in. You have to remember, Colley was the last guy in the Department of Corrections, as far as we know, who saw Michael Frankie alive. He left the, the building at 645. He came back, 8.39, something like that, and it's sort of remarkable. He went to his office and started making phone calls. This is after he'd been told that Michael Frankie was missing, his car door was found open. He didn't go to Michael Frankie's office to see if he was there. It's hard to, to explain why. His explanation to the police shortly afterwards was that he was afraid he would find Michael Frankie's body in his office that he was afraid that Michael Frankie had committed suicide. That he was distraught over uh, the breakup of his marriage. And so he didn't go to Michael Frankie's office looking for him. After he got to the dome building, he called Dick Peterson. Dick Peterson came by the dome building. And suicide doesn't sit well with Elise Clausen, who says Mike wasn't despondent, but rather open and pragmatic about his separation. I would say Michael was pretty stoic. He came into my office and said something like, it's been a tough morning. I think you should take your boss to lunch. And I said, okay. So we left for lunch and he said, I took Binka, his wife, to the airport today. She's um, leaving me and she'd gone. And she says, Mike was focused on his presentation for the next morning, not personal issues the day he was murdered. He said, I wish we were in the same session because I think he was going to be in the Senate testifying and I was going to be in the House testifying. And he said, before the end of the day, let's just kind of practice and talk about our various testimonies and our strategies. Did you get the chance to practice with him later that day? I did. At the end of the day, when I was done, I went in to his office and we talked through a bunch of stuff and kind of what we were going to do and what our process was going to be and how we were going to approach it. But back to the meticulous search story, which local television reporter Eric Mason never felt added up. They were people that were still in the dome building at the time. Mike's pager was going up, but he was not returning calls. Searches had been made several times 
all over the building, and for some strange reason, they had missed or someone had not gone out to the porch to see the broken glass, the blood, the body laying there, right there in front of the door where he had punched through the glass and tried to open the door with his own hand. And Kevin takes issue with where Mike's car keys ended up. They were in a drain at the end of the north portico near his body, but they weren't on his person. It was kind of odd. But Elise Clausen offers another theory as to why Mike's body may have been missed. In those days, the porticos, they didn't have lights on them, and the shrubs were grown up really high. So if you were, you know, walking up the main front steps, you couldn't see what was on those porticos. Some believe a janitor may have seen Michael Frankie's last steps to that portico. Here's Phil Stanford's take. One of the first witnesses to come forward in, in this case was a janitor by the name, a last name of Hunsaker, who shortly after the murder talked to the police and told him that about 7 o'clock on the night of the murder, January 17th, he had just gotten off work and had, had left the dome building at a side door on the north side of the building. And, and as he came around the corner, he heard a sound. It would have been to his left, about 40 feet down. And it uh, sounded like someone had been hit. And he saw two men. One who was wearing a trench coat turned and started running west across the field there the grounds uh, towards the old Salem Hospital. And the other turned and walked leisurely back towards the dome building. And he didn't see anything wrong. There were some real problems right off the top because, first of all, Hunsaker said that the presumed assailant, the one who turned and ran, was the taller of the two. Well, Michael Frankie was 6'3 or 6'4 and is wearing cowboy boots, so this guy would have been NBA quality but more than that, the, the second man, he said, walked leisurely back to the dome building. He said if he'd thought that he was hurt, he would have gone to help. There was no sign that he was hurt. He wasn't bent over. He wasn't staggering. He didn't seem to be in any sort of distress. Yeah, I don't think that if I had just been stabbed in the heart that I would be walking slowly anywhere. No, he said leisurely. That, that's, that's what's in my notes. By the way, by the time it got to trial, they got Hunsaker to say that he was walking briskly back to the, the dome building. But the problem is that I, I don't think that was Michael Frankie out there. I think there, there were probably a couple people involved in the murder, which perhaps had just taken place. I don't know. But it, it wasn't Michael Frankie. Mother's Day is coming, and mom doesn't want flowers. She wants a cocktail. Here's a hint. Get mom Bartesian. It's the countertop cocktail maker that creates your choice of over 60 premium cocktails in less than 30 seconds, each at the touch of a button. Flowers die. Happy hour comes back every day. So get mom the machine that makes amazing cocktails with real fruit juices and craft bitters. Best of all, get $50 off a Bartesian premium cocktail maker with the purchase of one pack of cocktail capsules. 
So, instead of getting mom a reason to fill a flower vase with water, get mom the easiest, fastest way to fill her glass with the floral notes of gin. The best cocktails are premium cocktails, and the best day to get it for mom is Mother's Day, because you can get $50 off now for a limited time. Visit B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N.com backslash mother to get the best premium cocktail maker for mom at the best price for you. Artesian, premium cocktails on demand. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. Just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are you ready to fight back against crime? Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies, personally investigating, prosecuting, and covering literally thousands of cases. It's so easy to think it will never happen to me or my family, but that is simply not true. Every day on Crime Stories with Nancy Grace, we shine a light on unsolved homicides, heat up cold cases, and help find missing people, especially children. We speak with family members, investigators, CSI, reporters, and experts in every field. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. Soon after the murder, talk of another mysterious figure emerged. About a week after the murder, the police held a press conference and announced they were interested in talking with a man who had been seen in the dome building the night of the murder. Uh, There weren't too many specifics, but they said he was a person of interest. He wasn't a suspect. He was a person of interest, and they wanted to talk to him. He was a well-dressed, well-groomed, Hispanic-looking man. I think they said uh, uh, had olive skin, and he was seen in the dome building at 6.30, the night of the murder, which was about an hour after the building had been locked to the public. He was walking down the hallway, a deserted hallway, and he turned a corner, and there was a woman who worked in personnel who was surprised because she'd never seen him before. And then working in personnel, she would know who worked in the dome building. He said, where's parole and probation? She pointed down the hall to where it was, and and he went in that direction. He was wearing a dark suit, and and the woman thought it was a pinstripe suit. He quickly uh, became known as the man in the pinstripe suit. Obviously very important because who would be in the dome building on the night of the murder after it was locked 
and no one knows who he is. Surely he would have come forward if he'd been there on legitimate business just to clear up the whole thing. No one ever came forward. No one ever figured out who he was. Which brings us back to Kevin's theory that Mike was never meant to die the way he died. Who's the guy in the pinstripe suit? And is stabbing him the best thing? No, I don't think that was what was planned. I think it was planned that he was, there was supposed to be a suicide. The pinstripe suit was supposed to disarm him, get him in his office, and make it look like a suicide. I don't know if they knew that he always used the north portico door instead of the main entry door because the pinstripe suit was seen at the main entry door going back and forth and not here. So if he came out here and the objective was to kill him and now he's getting loose and you have to stop him and the shit hits the fan. It's hard to visualize the logistics of the murder scene that Mike could have been stabbed in plain sight by his car, which was parked in a spot reserved for the director and died feet away on the porch of the Department of Corrections and no one found him for four hours. Left. Pat and Kevin agreed to take me there so I could see it in person. Keep going. Look here or this one? This one right here. This one here. Pull right in there. That's where Mike's car was, right here. For the Frankie brothers, the dome building has become a memorial for Mike, and the Department of Corrections has dedicated one there in his honor. It's a beautifully welded metal podium decorated with intricate ivy-like vines and topped with a gilded cup for votive candles, and a framed plaque that reads, In memory of Oregon Department of Corrections Director Michael Frankie. End of watch, January 17th, 1989. Inmates designed and built this memorial. Take a look at that thing, it's gorgeous. When was this dedicated? Three years this summer. They got tired of finding candles up here every January 18th. They'd come down and put candles in the doorway down there and statues and wreaths and A hurricane lamp we left one year with. Because the wind was blowing so hard, we couldn't keep the candle lit. (laughs) So we went and bought bought an oil lamp, you know. Did you guys weigh in on the design at all? Oh, no, no, no. This was done of and by the inmates. The memorial stands between the spot where Mike's car was found with the door open and the portico where his body was discovered. So this is where his car was sitting. Door standing open. Lise Clawson came out over here, saw his sitting open, hollered around, went back in, started making phone calls. No sign of him anywhere. He was obviously, had already made it up the steps and down to that side door. Would the timing have made sense that he would have already been up there? Yes, oh yeah. Didn't take him a minute or so to walk up there. They photographed his blood spatters and there's a Dr. Leon, Herbert Leon McDonald, that wrote the book on blood spatter evidence and he also invented the fingerprint brush system. And he could measure the speed that Mike was walking by the, how the blood hit the ground. Pretty fascinating. Blood spatter evidence. So it was low velocity blood spatters that started right about where the little monument is there. His clothes were soaking up most of the blood when it started. 
But I still don't understand how there could have been no blood between that car and this spot. She had a top coat on and a sport coat on. But I know exactly what she's saying, Pat. How could there not be one drop of blood? I don't know. We'll revisit this later, but after Mike's murder, tips came in about possible killers, and at least two involved mention of the murderer discarding bloody clothing. So if we were stabbed by the car and that person had blood on their clothing, how did it not get anywhere else until right here? Why didn't it get That's on the car? what, 150 feet? Yeah. So I don't agree with their story. I don't believe he was stabbed at his car. There's too much blood coming out of him through the types of wounds that he had to not leave even one drop of blood. This was cordoned off, and then everything became cordoned off after a couple hours and a full grid search of all the grass, everything. And no blood found over there. The guard who found the body went up and immediately came back after he got his light on him and saw that it appeared to be a dead body. And he called the comm center, and the comm center summoned the police, parked out here and waited for the cops. The crash unit came from the fire department, and there was one uh, fireman that went up on the right side, did a visual, didn't touch anything, and then backed out and said, he's dead, there's no reason to transport. And then they had to wait for the state police crime lab truck to get here, and then they made the decision to delay processing the crime scene until morning. And that was a real bad mistake. Poor, poor, poor mistake. When that decision was made, then you eliminate being able to establish the time of death. And time of death wasn't the only important piece missing from this puzzle. While Michael's wallet, money, and watch were still on his person, his briefcase and computer were nowhere to be found. And probably his gun. And it's not so much the computer, because the computers back then had the memory of a mouse, four-legged mouse. What he would have had and what he did had a bunch of the old floppy disks, because that's the memory. That's your, your treasure. So you would have had the floppy disk. That's the money. They would have held the meat of the corruption investigation. And they weren't anywhere, not in the car, not in the office. The floppy disks had vanished along with Michael's main briefcase and his laptop. He would have had his briefcase. He had it down in Florida when he came to visit. In fact, it also had room that if he wanted to fit the computer and slots for the floppy disks. And none of it was ever found. None of it. Michael would have also had substantial amounts of office paperwork, which seems to have disappeared too. There were 23 trash bags full of papers that were carried out of somewhere, and I would suspect some of it came out of his office, and they were all shredded. And apparently, they were shredded the day after Mike's body was found. An inmate that worked at the dome building, you know, doing cleaning or some administrative work and stuff like that, and he'd go back to the prison at night. And I think he called somebody, and it got reported. Why did they go in there on a Saturday? You're not getting paid to shred papers on a Saturday and shred 23 bags of data. Former Representative Chuck Sides is still bothered by a conversation he had with Mike weeks before the murder. We went out to the Greek restaurant and said, 
as we were doing, you know, what's going on. And, and he just says, well, this uh, knife was discovered in the prison. And I remarked, well, at least it wasn't a gun. He goes, you don't understand. A knife's far dangerous than a gun in prison. A gun makes a sound. A knife doesn't. And if you stick that knife in between the third and fourth rib, you hit the heart and the person's gone. That was three weeks before he was taken out, exactly like that. And that was the ironic thing that happened. The state police interviewed me three times because of uh, my connection with my trying to pick up, but they were totally lost. The Frankie brothers agree. They asked all the standard questions. Have you ever seen anything? Did Mike have any drug habits? Did Mike have any drinking habits? Did he have any gambling habits? Uh, do you know if he w- was having affairs with anybody? You sure he wasn't into gambling or any stuff like that? Did, what kind of drugs did recreational drugs did he use? And I say he didn't. Did he tell you this? Did he tell you that? And I said no. What he told me was that he had uncovered an organized criminal element, and it kind of went over his head. Not only would state police officer Lauren Glover and then District Attorney Dale Penn deny Mike Frankie was even investigating corruption, they'd claim his family never mentioned it or their fear he was targeted because of it. Absolutely. Dale Penn and Glover both denied that I had ever brought it up. And this is months later. They were still saying, oh, he never said anything about that, never said anything about that. The official story was that you never, you know, the family, Binkta didn't raise her concerns, you didn't raise your concerns, and yet there was something in uh, Lauren Glover's notes that proved that within the first 48 hours you had both expressed concerns that he was targeted. Absolutely. And it wasn't until we had the copies of the officer's notes that you could see that it was written in there. We were down at Santa Fe for, for Mike's funeral. And I had the phone record from Santa Fe when I called back up three days later to talk to Renfro, who was the head of the criminal division at that point in time, who put Dale Penn on the phone too. And I iterated what I said to Glover to them to make sure that they had the story about the organized criminal element and that he had to clean house and identified Scott McAllister, who's an assistant attorney general, and Mike was having problems getting rid of him. All of that was put on the table within the first four days. When Kevin returned home to Florida, Mike's murder was officially ruled a random car burglary gone bad, and all his allegations of corruption ignored. But when he finally got Mike's autopsy, all hell broke loose. It was four pages that was probably... 80% blacked out, redacted. The arrogance of those fucking bastards is what grips me to this day. They thought that uh, both Pat and I would just kind of roll over and play dead and say, hey, brother got killed, shit happens. (laughs) Fuck you. Coming up on the next Murder in Oregon... The Frankie brothers reach a breaking point with the official investigation. It's an incestuous bunch of criminals down here. Turns out there's an incestuous bunch of political officials, too. Leading them to a disturbed suspect. I went to a psychic, and she said that he has somebody in custody right now named John K. He says it's C. Krauss. With a disturbing past. He'd been beaten by his father. 
when he was 12 years old, tie him to a chair and beat him till he was blue. And a murder confession that would end with a shocking twist. Murder in Oregon is hosted by Lauren Bright Pacheco and Phil Stanford. Executive producers are Noel Brown, Lauren Bright Pacheco, and Phil Stanford. Supervising producer and lead editor is Taylor Shacoin. Sound design by Tristan McNeil. Story editing by Matt Riddle. Written by Phil Stanford, Matt Riddle, and Lauren Bright Pacheco. Music written and performed by the Diamond Street Players and mixed by Taylor Shacoin. With music supervision by Noel Brown. Murder in Oregon is a production of iHeartRadio. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold Blooded, the Apollo Jim murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Johnny B. Good, the host of the podcast Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin. This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company Centratech. I'll explore how 320-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed. I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.